This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to Green Pulse, a podcast series by The Straits Times where we analyse the beats of the changing environment, from biodiversity conservation to climate change. I'm your host Audrey Tan and I cover science and environment for The Straits Times. My co-host is David Fogarty. Hi, I'm David and I'm the climate change editor at The Straits Times. It is the 3rd of October. Today, we're discussing the power of the corporate world in fighting climate change. Businesses are major sources of greenhouse gas emissions heating up the planet. But they are also drivers of change. Their investments in green energy, transport and low-carbon supply chains can drive positive change in government policies and influence consumer behaviour. But some corporate actors are still hampering climate action by failing to use their financial clout and influence to change for the better. Joining us to discuss the vital role of the corporate world in the green transition is Professor Jeffrey Sachs, who is Director of the Centre for Sustainable Development at Columbia University in the United States. Welcome to the show, Professor Sachs. Great to be with you. Thank you so much. So, Professor, let's start off with a look at how companies can be a powerful force for good and for change. So what defines a good company? A good company is uh, one that is uh, providing good services or goods to the economy and providing those goods and services in a responsible way, responsible to nature, responsible to communities, responsible to government by paying taxes and acting honestly. Uh, So good companies are those that are aligned with the public purpose and aligned with sustainable development. In terms of how a company can contribute to climate change, could you just give us some ways um, that firms can do that in terms of accelerating the green transition? And why can transitioning to clean energy and transport be good for business? The transformation to green energy and and transport is uh, vital for humanity. We're already in the midst of extraordinarily dangerous and disruptive climate change. We've seen it all over the world. This is uh, not a choice for humanity. This is a must do. And that means that if we look at uh, 2050 as our arrival date latest, we need to be with vehicles that are all electric and zero emitting, with uh, more public transport, with buildings uh, that are heated and cooled with uh, electricity rather than with uh, heating oil or or natural gas, for that matter. Uh, We need an industrial sector uh, that is using clean hydrogen, that is hydrogen produced by renewable energy rather than burning fossil fuels uh, on site. And we need a power grid uh, that produces electricity without emitting carbon dioxide. And that means wind, solar, hydro, geothermal, ocean, and some other technologies in some places, of course, also nuclear power. But it means uh, that we cannot rely on coal oil and gas as we have for the last hundred years uh, in the world uh, economy. So 
basically for companies, uh, they just need to be on that page, which is uh, if you're in the energy sector, don't build new coal-fired power plants. Don't even uh, think about uh, new gas-fired power plants, uh, by and large, unless it's part of a coherent, consistent framework and strategy to get to zero emissions. Now, the overall responsibility for that strategy is is government. We need government planning, pure and simple. Markets cannot sort all of this out on their own. But then we need businesses that are aligned with that transformation. And in my country, the United States, for example, we need businesses to absolutely stop their relentless lobbying to prevent the transformation because in the United States, business runs government at least as much as government uh, orients business. We have a huge lobbying sector. We have a lot of money in politics. We have a lot of corruption, actually. Uh, And so the businesses need to stop the lobbying against the transformation, as a lot of the oil, gas, and coal companies have done over the last 20 years, because that's completely against the public interest. So can you give us some specific examples of good actors and actions that illustrate why the corporate world is vital in driving the green transition? A lot of our energy, uh, and certainly almost all of our energy use, is driven by the private sector. And in the utility sector, you have major companies uh, in Europe, for example, Iberdrola in Spain or Enel. And I mentioned uh, Enel, which is an Italian company in Iberdrola, uh, because they have large investments across dozens of countries. And they're pushing towards a clean energy grid. They're building out the wind and the solar and the smart transmission lines that make it possible to get to net zero. Uh, You have major wind companies. You have former oil and gas companies like Statoil of Norway, which changed its name to Equinor and now is really promoting offshore wind because they realize that's the future. And since they knew a lot about building large rigs offshore, they can build a lot of large wind turbines offshore and uh, really contribute to the renewable energy systems. So there are many companies doing a good job. A lot of the automotive companies are in the process of rapidly transforming and retooling from the internal combustion engine model of the last hundred years to a new electric vehicle framework for the coming decades. That's all good. Uh, the, The companies that are the problem are the ones that don't get it that say, no, 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 we're, we're not part of this. We're going to lobby against it. Oil, gas, and coal is so important. We're going to continue not only to produce those, but to lobby against the green transformation. And we've got a lot of those companies also. This is a, a battle. It's a battle for the future, though. Uh, there's only one right answer in this. This isn't two equal sides. Either we're going to have a completely destabilized planet, and we're pretty close to that right now, or we're going to get this transformation not only underway, but really completed by mid-century. So let's talk about uh, a little bit more about the companies that are holding back the transition. You you talked a lot about uh, lobbying. 
powerful vested interests, perhaps in the fossil fuel sector. Why are they so reluctant to change? Is it just simply because they're they're fearful of uh, falling profits or you know, rebellion from their shareholders? Although I think it seems to be increasingly there's a lot of shareholder action pushing for positive climate action in a lot of these energy companies. So maybe dig a little deeper into this. Let, let me mention, of course, that when you think about this broad transformation, there are many sectors involved. So the answer to your question really depends on sector. There are the power generation players. There are the automotive and transport sector players. There's the real estate development, those who build buildings, residential and commercial. There's the industrial sector. There's the global transport sector, aviation uh, and ocean shipping. And there is the enormous land use sector, agro-industry, which is actually responsible for a shockingly large amount of the greenhouse emissions because the agro-industry transforms land, tears down trees for new pasture land or new farmland, adds uh, tens of millions of tons of fertilizer that much of which, uh, or some of which at least volatilizes and puts in uh, nitrous oxide uh, into the atmosphere. There are methane releases from agriculture. So what you see is a lot of players in this transformation. And generally, I think it's right to say that current industries that emit a, a very high amount of greenhouse gases, so whether it is carbon dioxide or methane or nitrous oxide, are resistant to change because they see the change as a direct threat to the bottom line. The rest of us see the change as a direct line to our safety because we see the climate absolutely turning into turmoil. Mega forest fires, uh, mega hurricanes and typhoons, droughts, floods, rising sea levels. We're saying enough, stop. But, you know, businesses uh, that are fighting for their bottom line can be pretty tough. And I think psychologically, it's very hard for big oil because big oil really ruled the roost for a hundred years. It was probably the most powerful single business lobby in the world because oil was associated with industry, with wealth and with military might. And so big oil. Uh, if you think about the giants like ExxonMobil or Chevron or others, they said, we're in charge of the world. And now they're being told, hey, you've got to change or actually get out of the way. And that rubbed pretty hard. What's also the case, and let's be clear about this, lots of governments in the world depend for their power base and their revenue base on fossil fuels. So there are a lot of petrostates. Uh, and those petrostates uh, are saying, what's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to our revenues? What's going to happen to our political base when fossil fuels go away? And those are real questions, by the way, for a lot of places, because they have to come up with different answers, different approaches for their economy, for the fiscal system, uh, for uh, the political system. And so this transformation isn't simple. It's not a win for everybody. It's not surprising that there is a rear guard fight against it, but it is 
absolutely uh, very uh, alarming that we've been at this 30 years now since the signing of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change in 1992, and we still have not turned the corner decisively on human-induced climate change. And 2022, I think, has been an eyes-open, shocking year everywhere for how much damage is already being caused by human-induced climate change. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Yeah, hearing some of the reports coming out from Florida about the impacts of Hurricane Ian and even the tropical cyclones that have been impacting Southeast Asia, the death toll and damage to infrastructure is just climbing. So what can be done to force business laggards to change? Like, What are the tools at our disposal? First, we need a clarity of thought and purpose. That's why the Paris Climate Agreement is so important. Second, we need government plans that say, here is how we are going to get to net zero by 2050. Governments need to absolutely <laughs> frame that pathway so that businesses have an orientation about what to do. Third, governments need to cooperate regionally. It's very hard for one country at a time, say in uh, Southeast Asia, one country at a time, Malaysia or Singapore or Indonesia uh, or uh, any of the other countries of ASEAN to do this by itself. Because to make a viable zero carbon energy system requires a regional grid uh, that is uh, sending uh, electrons over a large distance uh, that is shipping hydrogen across a, a large economy that is doing the research and development needed to push forward some of the core technologies that we have in hand but need to be improved at lower cost and greater efficiency. So regional cooperation is absolutely essential. Then businesses need to do their homework. They need to understand, well, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for the shareholders? What does this mean for our business strategy? Where is the market going? Where is the regulatory framework going in the future? What technology choices do we have? And I see this across the economy that whether you're steelmaking or whether you're in ocean transport or whether you're in the airline industry uh, or whether you're in the cement industry or whether you are a real estate developer, you need to understand this because your business environment absolutely will change. And those who are not in the forefront are, are going to end up losing big. Those who are in the forefront are going to end up making a lot of money by being uh, in the right place at the right time because they've anticipated the changes that are needed. So COP27, which is the major UN climate conference uh, being hosted by Egypt, is just a month away. So what outcomes would really help businesses focus on fast action on climate change? Businesses want to know that there is a policy framework that they can understand and that they can rely upon and that there is finance available to undertake projects. 
most of what needs to be done is pretty capital intensive. You build the uh, solar fields or wind turbines today with debt finance, uh, and then you recoup uh, over the next uh, 20 or 30 years. But that requires uh, low-cost, long-term financing to be available. So the puzzle of how to get that financing still is a major issue in the global policy discussions. But there are two more sides of that finance worth mentioning. One is that in addition to the energy transformation, we need countries to be protecting their physical environment, the infrastructure, the population centers from the increasing damages already being incurred by the climate change that's underway, the so-called adaptation spending. And tragically, we're seeing disaster after disaster linked to human-induced climate change, the hurricanes, the droughts, the floods, the forest fires, and so forth, what are called the losses and damages from human-induced climate change. And recovery also needs to be financed. You have a lot of poor countries that are getting slammed by climate shocks that they had no role in uh, causing at all because they're so small and poor, they weren't the ones emitting the fossil fuels. But the rich countries so far haven't said, well, we'll help you by funding the losses and damages uh, response. That is the recovery funding that is needed uh, in the aftermath of these disasters. So there's a lot of contention about how this is going to be paid for. The what to do needs to be clarified. The how to pay for it also needs to be clarified. Those are central issues at COP27. Yeah, so that's that's something that I would really like to ask you a little bit more about. You had a project syndicate commentary last year in which you laid out a system of levies on carbon emissions on wealthier nations that could fund climate investments in the green transition, adaptation, and loss and damage. So is this still the best way forward? I recommended that uh, countries accept some historical responsibility for what they've done. In other words, countries that have emitted a tremendous amount of fossil fuels per person in the past say, okay, we, uh, we're a bit on the, on, on the tab right now. We have to finance uh, the losses and damages and adjustment costs, that is the adaptation expenses, of countries that did very little to cause this problem but are now suffering from the problem. And I pointed out that even a small levy, a few dollars per ton of CO2 emission currently, or even a smaller amount levied on <laughs> the accumulation of past emissions, using that as, as the tax base, as it were, could generate tens or a hundred million dollars of climate financing right now that could go to these causes. In fact, if you mobilize that kind of financing through a levy on emissions, that amount that was mobilized could itself be leveraged into an even larger flow of funding if it is turned into low interest loans rather than cash grants. In other words, there's lots of financing mechanics that are possible, but my basic recommendation remains that rich, powerful, early industrializers like my own country, the United States or Europe, 
which have a historical responsibility for the mess that we're in right now, accept that uh, and uh, help to finance the adaptation and the losses and damages being incurred by much poorer and much more vulnerable societies. Well, thank you so much, Prof. Sachs. I expect that we'll see a lot of this play out further the closer we get to COP27. It certainly is going to be on the agenda. I will be there and I'll be pushing for climate financing. So I think we're going to have some uh, interesting, interesting uh, global debates on these issues in the coming weeks. And great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Well, that's a wrap for Greenhouse and we hope you enjoyed our discussion. For more on climate change and the environment, do check out our stories in The Straits Times. And don't forget to subscribe to our Green Pulse podcast series on your favourite audio apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.